This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, we're looking this morning, as we continue our studies in the Gospel of Matthew, we're looking at Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. Hear the Word of God. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but... To sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your holy word. We thank you for the treasure that it is. We thank you that we have it in our own native tongue. And Father, we pray that you will take uh, your word this morning as we study it, think about it together, and that you would apply it to our lives. You would open our minds to understand it, that we might live by it. We pray that you would feed our souls on it in this hour, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in 1998, I volunteered to serve as a floor clerk at the St. Louis General Assembly. Now, a floor clerk is an essential task in the General Assembly. It's the job of the floor clerk to be sure that reports to the assembly are distributed to the commissioners. Each clerk is given a section of seats that he's responsible for. Uh, A floor clerk is a commissioner to the assembly and can vote, but frequently is on his feet and busy either getting or distributing reports uh, so that it's it's difficult to keep up with the debate. And If you do, you can raise your card to vote when the vote is called, but uh, really you're taken up with your responsibilities. It's hard to follow the proceedings of the assembly. Floor clerk also is important because when a vote is taken that is so close as to need to be counted, 
It is the job of the clerk to count the votes, yea or nay, in his section of seats, and then return that tally to the floor clerk's desk up front, which is then reported uh, to the moderator so that the vote can be determined. Being a floor clerk is typically seen as something of a menial job. It has its disadvantages. For one thing, you always have to be on the floor of the assembly. You have to be paying attention. You can't go out and schmooze with friends in the hall or visit the bookstore or go hang out in the exhibit hall uh, because reports need to be passed out, because votes may need to be taken. And so it's a position of service to the assembly. But let me tell you why I volunteered to be a floor clerk to the 1998 General Assembly. We were in our Presbytery meeting earlier in the spring in what was then North Georgia Presbytery, and uh, the moderator of the assembly was trying to fill slots our presbytery needed to fill for various positions at the assembly, including men to sit on the committees of commissioners to uh, audit and, and vote on and make reports for the various PCA committees and agencies. But then the, the call for volunteers for floor clerk goes out. We need a couple of men from our presbytery, ask for two from each presbytery. We need a couple of men to serve as floor clerks. Well, suddenly everyone is, you know, ducking behind their seats, uh, looking for something, anything uh, in their briefcase, uh, anything but uh, meeting the moderator's eye as he's looking for volunteers. And after a few uncomfortable moments of silence, we had a volunteer. Kennedy Smart volunteered to serve as a floor clerk at the General Assembly. Now, some of you may recognize that name, others maybe not, but Kennedy Smart is one of the founding fathers of the PCA long-time pastor in, and leader in our denomination. And Kennedy Smart volunteered to serve as a floor clerk at the General Assembly. And I thought, you know, that's really something. Here's this man, gone up in years, uh, has, has certainly been a faithful service to the denomination in all kinds of ways, founding father of our church, volunteers to this lowly task of floor clerk at the General Assembly. I thought, well, you know, if Kennedy Smart can do that, I can do that. So I volunteered to be a floor clerk at the 1998 General Assembly in St. Louis with Kennedy. Well, now the rest of the story, we get to St. Louis and uh, we floor clerks report before the assembly begins. And then we have the opening meeting of the assembly after the worship service. And in that opening assembly, Kennedy Smart was elected moderator of the General Assembly, and I served as a floor clerk. Now, Kennedy's service as moderator was also valuable service to the assembly, and the moderator also can't go out and just hang out in the bookstore whenever he should feel the need to do so. Well, serving, being a servant, is not something that comes naturally to us. By nature, and I mean by fallen nature, we are inclined to be self-centered, self-serving, self-promoting. That's nothing new. We see that in the passage that is here before us, where this kind of self-promoting attitude becomes very evident in Jesus' disciples. And as he addresses that, In them, he is addressing that in us as well. And particularly as we look at this passage, as Matthew records it here, this incident that took place, I want us to learn two very simple lessons from God's word this morning. In the first place, greatness in the kingdom of heaven is not achieved through self 
promotion. It's simply not achieved through self-serving, self-promotion. And we have this, this account where the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who were James and John, uh, together with James and John, approach Jesus and come to him and ask him. They say, we want to ask you about something, or as we would do it today, maybe, could I ask a favor of you? Now, Mark in Mark 10 does not report their mother being part of this, uh, not that she wasn't there, uh, but obviously all three were involved, the mother uh, looking out for the uh, interests of her sons, and James and John uh, also involved, and in fact, Jesus addresses them more than he does their mother in making this request. So all three were involved, and they come to Jesus. They, she kneels before him and asks him for something. He says, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. He's asking for something pretty big, for a huge favor of Jesus. And you know his response, as we read it earlier. Well, this really strikes a blow at everything that Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples about himself, about the kingdom that he has come to establish. And essentially, as we look at what happens here, there are four mistakes we can observe that Jesus would have been keenly sensitive to that we need to be as well. As well, The first mistake is this jockeying for position. You know, keeping an eye out, making sure someone doesn't get an edge on us, someone doesn't gain some advantage over us. Now, in our home, we have a tradition on Saturday nights of, of homemade pizza and, uh, and ice cream, and usually a video, or sometimes just watching TV, depends on what's on. Now, I can tell you this takes place, because I've seen this take place. In fact, I've done this myself. You know, after we, we usually watch for a while, and then it's time for the ice cream. And a lot of times Barbara will go and scoop the ice cream in the bowls, and we come in there to get our bowl. And Caleb and I kind of looking at the ice cream. Now, Barbara tries to be very equal with this, but we're gauging that ice cream. Which one has more in it? You, know, you take that. No, no, you take, oh, I'll take it. Okay. Then take the one with the most ice cream. You know, you're smiling. You know, you've done this yourself. You've done this. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's not ice cream. Maybe it's something else. But, uh, you know, there it really doesn't matter a whole lot. But when we start talking about the kingdom and our service and our role in the kingdom, that can get ugly. Because the kingdom of heaven is not about position. It's not about angling for the advantage over someone else. And that's exactly what is taking place here. The mother of the sons of Zebedee is, is looking out for her sons. They obviously are involved in this as well, trying to stake a claim, trying to get the place of honor at Jesus' right hand, at Jesus' left hand. Can't help but wonder which, which of those two, you know, if they were even eyeing each other, which one's going to get the right hand, the, the true place of honor, and who's going to kind of settle for being on the left hand, which isn't quite as high an honor. Even between the two of them, they may have been kind of pondering how they're going to get that highest place at the right hand of Jesus. Now, you have to give them some credit. At least they had the faith to recognize that his kingdom was coming, which at this point took a lot of faith to see. They were heading for Jerusalem, they were hoping for big things, and they wanted to make sure that they got their claim early 
for the place of honor. Another mistake that they make here is that of not counting the cost that accompanies that place of honor. Look at verse 22. Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what goes along with that place of honor. And the implication is, if you did know, you wouldn't be so quick to ask for it. Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, what's he talking about there? Well, you may know the cup is an image or metaphor from the Old Testament. Uh, the idea of drinking the cup was the idea of experiencing suffering or the idea of experiencing God's wrath or God's judgment. And so Jesus said, look, you don't know what you're asking here. Are you able, if you want a place near me, are you able to suffer what I'm going to suffer? Are you able to suffer in the way that I'm going to You see, in the kingdom of heaven, greatness, place of honor, is not gained by the asking. It's not gained by the maneuvering. It's gained through the affliction. It's gained through participating, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And indeed, Jesus says, when they said we we're able, perhaps a little too glibly, a little too quickly, Jesus said, you will drink my cup. You know, they would, in fact, uh, suffer with Jesus, and in fact, they did. James was executed in Acts chapter 12. John was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation, and they did indeed participate in Christ's sufferings. But you see, that's the pattern of the kingdom. It's not self-promotion. It's not maneuvering for the place of honor. It is suffering with Christ, participating in his sufferings. Now, his sufferings are unique. Our sufferings with him are not redemptive in the way that, that his was redemptive, as he later goes on to describe here. Nevertheless, we do share and participate in those sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by those, glory is acquired, is gained by the grace of God. Remember that great uh, hymn, Philippians 2, that describes Jesus' humiliation, or as we read in the catechism, his estate of humiliation, his suffering, that, that abasement he, he endured. Therefore... God exalted him to the highest place. Do you ever ponder that word, therefore? It doesn't just say he suffered, he was crucified, even the death on a cross, and God exalted him to the highest place. It says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Because you see, no one ever humbled himself more than Jesus to go from the glories of heaven to life in this world to bearing the sins of his people under the curse of his father on the cross. No one ever took a greater fall than did Jesus. And therefore, no one was ever exalted, as was Jesus, to the highest place, to the right hand of his father in heaven. 
But that's the pattern for all of us. First, the suffering. Then, the glory. First, the cross. Then, the crown. And this suffering is often a way that God uses us in this world through our own afflictions, both in shaping Christ in us and using us in that and after that to minister to others. If you've never read the book Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, I recommend it to you. Hudson Taylor, of course, the missionary to China, uh, signally successful and effective as a missionary. But what is often not seen in genuine so-called success in ministry is the suffering that accompanies it. Hudson Taylor uh, suffered to accomplish what he did. And in the book Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, it says, associated with every fresh advance, every access of power and blessing, there was in Mr. Taylor's own experience a corresponding period of suffering and trial. Deeper down, deeper down that life had to go in God. Outwardly, it might seem at times that the work was carried on a flood tide of success. Glorious steps of faith were taken. Glorious answers to prayers were received. But the preparation of heart beforehand and the steady burden bearing afterwards were known only to those who shared them behind the scenes. One stands silenced before such profound heart searchings, such trial of faith, such exercise of soul. Given man prepared to go all lengths with God, prepared to die daily in quiet practical reality, prepared to be the servant of his brethren, least of all and servant of all, prepared to stand for them in ceaseless intercession, not only bearing with their failures and weaknesses, but bearing them up in creative faith and love that lift to higher levels. Thus and thus only is such spiritual success possible. That's why Jesus said to his would-be great disciples, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Effectiveness in the Christian life, effectiveness in ministry, comes with a cost. The cost of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Another mistake they made here, uh, not only promoting themselves, not only not, not counting the cost, but also ignoring providence. Look at 23. Jesus said to them, you will drink my cup. Interesting, Jesus knew that. He knew what would become of these servants of his. But, he says, to sit at my right hand and my left is not for mine to grant. It's not for me to grant. It is what my Father already has granted. It's for those for whom it's been prepared by my Father. And I can't change that simply because a mother of two boys comes and requests that I do that. Jesus says, you will in fact share in my sufferings, but to sit at my right and my left has already been determined, and it's not my place to grant that. My Father's already determined that. You see, another place, of, another important recognition in serving in the kingdom of God is simply God's providence. The gifts he's given you, the opportunities he places before you, the effectiveness, the success, or the lack of success, or apparent success, that God may give you is all in his providence. We serve at his pleasure. We experience whatever blessing in us and through us is his pleasure to give. And we rest content in that because our Father is at work. You know, it was Paul who said to the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, 
But God gives the increase. We're each servants. We each have our role to play. But ultimately, the work is God's. The blessing is God's. The success belongs to God. And here were two men who wanted places of honor. But Jesus said, you, you know, one, that's not how you go about it. Two, do you recognize the cost involved in that? Three, God in his providence has already determined who's going to have those places, and it's not mine to grant. We need to be content in God's providence. Now, that doesn't mean we don't work to improve. It doesn't mean we work don't work for success. We don't work to be effective. But we do so all the while recognizing that our Father has granted what he will to us, opportunities and service and ministry and effect and effectiveness. And we, we're content in that. We're content to rest with the providence of God. Another mistake they make here, stepping on others. Look at verse 24. When the ten heard about it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Why? At their appalling lack of spirituality? No. I think much more so fear that these two might gain an advantage. Because they probably have been thinking the same things. They just weren't the first to ask. I don't think I'm misreading them or misunderstanding or misinterpreting their indignation at James and John and their mother. They didn't like that. And rightly so, because they also recognized that somebody was stepping on them to get to the top. Because if James and John had the two places of power and secured that in this way, it meant they didn't. It meant they were deprived of that. And they didn't like that, and I would suggest for selfish reasons. But either way, the fact is, James and John were seeking an advantage over these other ten men who had served and were serving with them and following them as Jesus' disciples. And so they're indignant because they recognize that someone was trying to get ahead of them. You know, I've been reading in my devotional uh, time in the Old Testament, reading through First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and it's it's rather amazing. Uh, David is anointed king early on, but for a long time he suffers under King Saul, who is pursuing him, who is envious of him. Who, uh, who sees David as a threat both to him and a threat to Jonathan, his son, whom he wants to succeed him as king. And David is being hunted like an animal by King Saul, who at least at times doesn't even seem to be in his right mind. And at least twice, David had opportunities to uh, get rid of King Saul, but he didn't do it. David was very protective of Saul, in fact, not only in his own actions, but also through the actions of others. And he would not touch the Lord's anointed. He had such respect for Saul as the anointed king of Israel, that even though he himself had been anointed already the next king, he would not do anything, and as far as he was able, would prohibit others from doing anything to take King Saul out so that he could be king. David, was he's everything the brothers here were not. He was not self-promoting. He recognized the weightiness of being king. He recognized the cost. He, was, he, he would, had a strong sense of providence that Saul was king right now, and in God's good time, David would become king, but David was not going to shed blood to bring that about, and he would not step on others to secure what ultimately was 
his. Tremendous example of the kind of the opposite attitude than that displayed here by these brothers. A contentedness to wait on the providence of God to make him king in God's time. So the first thing we see here is a simple lesson. Kingdom greatness is not achieved through self-promotion. And the flip side, of course, is that kingdom greatness is achieved by self-denying service. Look at verse 25. When Jesus recognizes his disciples are falling into old ways here, he calls them to himself and says a couple of lessons. First of all, the kingdom of heaven is not... Greatness therein is not achieved through climbing the corporate ladder, uh, as he says here. Look what he says. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. In other words, the mentality, the whole outlook in the kingdom of heaven is quite different. He points to the secular world which this would be the Romans, the Gentiles. He's not really contrasting Gentiles with Jews. He's just saying, look at the nations, look at the way the governments of this world and the powers of this world operate. The rulers lord it over them. That has a negative sound to us, to abuse authority. And that probably is what it is, what is meant. First Peter, uh, Peter refers to uh, elders, leaders in the church, not to lord their position over those who are under their care. And so it probably is, is supposed to have that negative sense here. Just generally we'd be exercising lordship over. But lording it over, I think, captures the, the, the sort of self-serving mentality. Their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, Jesus isn't taking exception to government power uh, as such, but he's simply saying that in the church it does not work that way. It shall not be so among you. That's not just a statement about the future. That is a command. It shall, you know, that, that's not how it's going to be, and that's not how it is. In my kingdom, it shall not be so among you. Well, how is it to be then? Instead of climbing the corporate ladder, verse 27, or verse uh, 26, rather, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. What's more, whoever's going to be the greatest is going to be slave of all. Now, there's a change of words there. Servant is diakonos, which our word deacon comes from. Slave is doulos. It means a bondservant. It means a slave, someone who is, is owned by or possessed by another. And Jesus uses that imagery, which in their day had strong connotations of humility, of lowliness, of nothingness. A slave was nothing. A slave was nobody. And so Jesus' words here would have a, a bit of a, a shocking effect. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And then he gives them exhibit A, namely himself. Verse 28, even as the Son of Man, a messianic title, came not to be served but to serve. Now, if anyone deserved to be served, it was Jesus. After all, he was the Messiah. After all, he was, he was God in the flesh. Not only to be served, but that deserves that they should simply fall on their face, flat before him in absolute adoration and worship. As did the angels in all their glory in heaven. 
but this one who was the object of the worship of the angels came not to be served, but to serve. To serve men like these self-promoting, self-seeking, self-serving disciples, like their mother, Judas Iscariot, in terms of his ministry with Jesus, to serve people like you and me. And, as part of that service, but going beyond it, specify to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is, is, is a good, good term there. Uh, it referred to price paid, to redeem a slave out of his bondage. Jesus would give his own life to ransom his people which did not include Judas Iscariot, but did include James and John, and I hope by God's grace, you as well, and me. For many. That word many reflects Isaiah 53, where it speaks of the suffering servant of the Lord uh, would would atone for the sins of many. There's, I think, an intentional echo there. That he would give his life as a ransom for many. So who wouldn't want to be great in the kingdom? I'll tell you who. The one who is great in the kingdom. Because he's not thinking about being great in the kingdom. She's not wrapped up with seeking greatness in the kingdom. They're not thinking about position. But people. The needs of people around them. Not how can people serve me, but how can I serve Those around me, my husband, my wife, my children, my parents, my friends, my neighbor, my classmate, my co-worker. How can I serve rather than how can I be served? How can I gain advantage? How can I be on top? See, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and those who are great in the kingdom of heaven is not maneuvering for position for themselves but seeking how they can enable others to be fulfilled, how they can enable others to have joy, to have their needs met. This person isn't saying mine, but yours. But nobody will notice. What if I lose by giving everything away to others? What if I lose by serving others? What if I lose by not grasping at opportunity? Your friend, the Lord knows. The Lord sees. Your service to others. You know, in John chapter 13, as they were in the upper room, Jesus would later kneel down before his disciples and wash their feet. And he said, you call me Lord and teacher, and rightly so. But if I, your teacher and your Lord, wash your feet, how much more should you do so for one another? Now, Jesus was not laying down a law about foot washing there. Jesus was giving them an example, as he says. You know, if their feet need washing, that's what you do. But his point was bigger than merely foot washing. His point was, if I, who am over you as your Lord, as your teacher, am willing to kneel down and wash your feet, surely you should be willing to serve one another. Dear friends, we serve a serving Savior. 
like our Savior, we should be servants ourselves. And without our even noticing it, we'll be great in the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you, by your grace you would overcome our natural tendencies to want to serve ourselves, to put in us the heart of Christ to serve others, and leave reputation up to you. Father, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you that he was willing to serve us, that he was willing even to die for us. Father, may we reflect that same heart in our relationships with one another and with the world. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.